I'll be following along in this paper, these handouts again, and I think one is back there in the foyer for um, next week, Psalm 75. If someone didn't have a chance to grab one from last week, I have an extra here. If anybody, go ahead, raise your hand if you need one. No? Everybody got one? Need one? Yeah. Um, So we're continuing to march through the Psalms of Asaph in this class, and so this week, uh, 74 is up. Let me pray, and then we'll read that um, in order to get it fresh in our minds, and then we can talk about it, and I'll leave some time for Q&A as well. Uh, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us, and we ask that you would help us to understand uh, these Psalms as we march through each of them individually, uh, help us to uh, see how they point forward to Christ, and also spoke uh, to many generations. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So let me read that. I'll read from the ESV, and then it'll be fresh in our minds as we talk about it. A Moschil of Asaph. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Uh, your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees and all its carved wood. They broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. There is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment. Destroy them. Yet my God, uh, sorry, yet God my king is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts, and do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Uh, remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Um, so, in this chapter, um, where we deal with Psalm 74, uh, I just open up with an illustration from a famous novel that recently came out. They made a movie out of it as well by a, a, uh, the Japanese Graham Greene, so to speak. His name is uh, Shusaku Indo. It's called Silence. And it's a piece that's all about Portuguese missionaries trying to come and evangelize the island of Japan. 
And the samurai don't want him to do that, so they persecute him through um, horrible means. And they try and get these missionaries, you know, cut the head off and scatter the body. So they try and get these missionaries to apostatize. So they figured if they could do that, then, um, then they would um, hopefully stamp out Christianity. So anyway, the reason I do this, and you'll see in these chapters as we march through in the next couple months, I'm trying to pepper them with various illustrations from modern culture because the theme of silence, which I've been maintaining as a major theme in these psalms, um, is very popular in our culture and in Western Europe and all around the world. And so um, we won't spend time on that, though. We're here to talk about Psalm 74, not the novel. Nonetheless, it's illustrative um, I really commend the novel and the movie if you get a chance, if you've not seen it. It's not easy to watch. And um, when you realize these are Portuguese missionaries, albeit Roman Catholic, nevertheless, brothers uh, in Christ who were, were uh, tortured and killed often. But, uh, but it's, it's, it's very well done. Surprisingly, uh, Martin Scorsese uh, did the movie. Um, so anyway, uh, as far as genre, we've been talking about how to understand the genre of these various psalms because that helps us understand the meaning. And so this is almost the inverse of Psalm 73 that we looked at last week where you had an individual who was perplexed. Um, I made the case that it was a psalm of reorientation or a Thanksgiving psalm and that God brought him through this period of disorientation to being reoriented once he came into the temple. But that was more individualistic. Now we come to a corporate psalm, and you can see this in the language. First person plural is very frequently used. So this is a lament. So in the terms we used last week, um, this would be disorientation, which is lament, orientation, uh, being more of a hymn, and, and reorientation being more of a thanksgiving genre. So this is, <clears throat> this is a community lament, uh, very possibly a Jerusalem lament, uh, because you could hear when we were reading this uh, that it seems to be clear that we're talking about the destruction of the temple. There's been different possible um, suggestions for the original historical occasion for which this psalm was written, but it was probably the destruction of the Jerusalem and the temple. And so that causes this lament. And uh, this occurs in a section of the Psalter that's called the Eloistic Psalter. Um, What happens at Psalm 42 up through Psalm 83, instead, in Hebrew, instead of the uh, divine covenantal name, usually pronounced Adonai, um, we get... um, And there's lots of discussion about why this is the case. We get the more universal name for God, Elohim. And that occurs with a high density between Psalms 42 and Psalms 83. And so here we're in the midst of the Eloistic Psalter. And why that's significant is a lot of these psalms have to do with the restoration of the temple. Um, The main message um, is to, I'm arguing, is to make seeking the glory of God, the goal of these, uh, this psalm for the psalmist who's in uh, bewilderment. So remember, I made the case, and for some of you that may have not been here for the beginning of the class, 
Psalm 50 is also a psalm of Asaph that's set off from Psalm 73 to 83. And Psalm 50 makes the claim that God's justice breaks through the heavens, he speaks through the heavens, and that he doesn't need empty ritualistic practices. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What God really wants is covenantal obedience and praise. And then Psalm 73 to 83 are all Asaphic Psalms together. They all have the title Asaphic Psalm. Asaph was probably a temple officiant and his sons. So in some way, they were responsible for worship in the temple. They're like many test cases um, uh, against that claim of Psalm 50. Um, so last week we saw that the individual psalmist is upset because the retribution principle didn't seem to be working. That the wicked, rich person doesn't get his comeuppance, his just desserts, and the righteous don't seem to get their just desserts. Actually, the opposite was happening, and so this causes them bewilderment. Where is God? Here, um, the temple is being desecrated. Uh, it's probably after the fall of Jerusalem, 587, 586. Uh, doctors argue over what the exact date was, because that's what doctors' jobs are to do. Uh, and uh, so, um, um, so anyway, it was one of those two years, and um, so now, because of the covenant being in the backstory, and God having a covenantal relationship with his people, that causes them feelings of bewilderment, abandonment. Um, you know, this would be like if, uh, God forbid, but if, if uh, you know, San Diego and Santee became a place of war, you know, and a foreign enemy came in, um, and, you know, destroyed these buildings in which we worship and didn't allow us to meet together and gather together to worship, it'd, it'd be something like that. Now the psalmist, his whole posture is probably after the fact, maybe even many years after the fact, reflecting back upon what has happened, and he sees these desecrated ruins and the desecrated temple. And remember, for them, the temple meant the presence of God. So it's, it's understandable and natural. I'm trying to build a bridge for you all to imagine how they must have felt, um, you know, looking upon desecrated ruins, probably dead bodies, and, and also uh, desecrated temple especially. And, um, you know, in modern parlance, we would call this PTSD memories, okay? And so, you know, they're wrestling with this tremendous devastation, Okay. Um, so, I think that's probably the context and probably how to understand the abandonment, uh, if you will, uh, that they're uh, feeling and what's going on. So, for verses 1 to 11, you get the churches expressing, the church of the Old Testament, expressing this lament. Um, God justifies lament in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms, elsewhere also. Um, and that's very important. The church that doesn't know how to help her people mourn and lament is really out of touch with the, with the heartbeat of the Psalter. Okay? And so we see this in verses 1 to 11. But what often happens in these lament Psalms, most of the Psalter is made up of lament Psalms, especially in the first book, excuse me, 1 through 42, uh, they often have a turning point where they end on a positive note. 
Um, so that's what we see here, verses 1 to 11. You get all these bitter complaints about God's displeasure and, and about what's going on. And then verses 12 through 23, the whole tone changes. Okay? So, um, verses 1 and 2 kind of set the uh, stage. Uh, when you, you look at that, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? So you can even hear, because of this covenantal relationship they had with God, now it seems to be breached or broken. They're feeling the alienation and voicing that and saying, why this tremendous desecration? And then pleading with God to remember uh, them, um, the sheep of his pasture. And... Um, you get a wonderful little anthropomorphism that doesn't come out in verse 3, uh, but um, in the Hebrew it basically says, you know, God doesn't have legs like we do, but it says step lightly on the ruins of the desecrated. You know, in other words, kind of pick up your feet, don't, you know, uh, as you walk through the city and see this. So anyway, that's what's going on at the, at the beginning here. And then... Um, let me stop and ask if there's any questions because next I want to segue into another point that's a kind of a background point, uh, but very important for understanding the meaning of the psalm. Questions? Comments? Pushback? All right. Maybe on the next point. All right. Um, it's very important to... so. So um, several weeks ago, if you remember, we were talking about having a toolkit up your sleeve to understand Scripture. And the more things you have in your toolkit that you can bring out to help you understand original historical context or genre or language that God chose to reveal Scriptures in, then the better, thicker understanding you're going to have. That doesn't mean that Scripture is inaccessible to people who haven't taken the time to study the genre, look up the possible original historical situation. But the more that you can bring to Scripture, the better questions, the more background, the thicker as opposed to thinner understanding you, you'll have. So one thing that's very important for understanding what's going on in this psalm and a number of these psalms and for many, many other places in the uh, Scriptures is to know a little bit about the town of Ugarit and what was going on there with her people and her literature. How many people have heard of Qumran? Okay, almost everybody. And everybody knows that's very important. The oldest Hebrew manuscripts we have are from Qumran. How many people have heard of Ugarit? If you haven't heard of it, it's okay. Just read it. Okay, so, um, so one of my seminary students, I think that's the only person in the room. All right, so... <laughs> That's okay, though. But I want to tell you what happened at Ugarit is as important for some parts of the Bible, especially the Psalter, as is what we discovered at Qumran for understanding much of the Old Testament. And one of the main reasons why is because that's where Baal worship was practiced. Okay, so... Everybody who's read in their English Bible or listened to a series of sermons on, on um, kings um, or Samuel knows about Baal and Baal, okay? And um, so that's, that's by and large where 
this cult came from, okay? And this is my little map of, some of you in the back probably have a hard time to tell you to not be good Presbyterians and sit in the back in the future, but come forward, all right? And, uh, uh, but this, this is my attempt at drawing Canaan, Palestine, Israel, okay? So this is the Sea of Galilee, this is the Dead Sea, uh, this is Mount Sinai, this is the Nile Delta down here, okay? Um, this is Mesopotamia off over here with a great big desert, okay? And uh, there was the Fertile Crescent, so everybody traveled up this way like Abraham because they go along the mountain where the water comes down. And that's your Hildago, and you're in a horse race, then you can go across few people got that. Anyway, uh, then, you, then you can go across the desert, but nobody goes across this desert normally, okay? So right above Israel at this time was uh, this area that was contested. So sometimes the big superpowers during the 1400 to 1200 were the Hittite nation up where Turkey is now, and they were so powerful they went down into Babylon and actually conquered certain parts of Babylon. Uh, but they were warrior people, very r- r- rough, mountainous area that produced a very stout warrior. And, and, and then you had the Egyptians down here. And the Hittites and the Egyptians were constantly fighting for this contested area here. And especially for, for this little town called Ugarit. Because it was a major seaport. And what happened was the Egyptians would go up the coastline and then put in here. And there was a lot of trade that happened. And they were kind of like Northern Ireland during the big war. So they kind of played both sides and remained neutral, uh, observing who was most in control at any given time, okay? Uh, Because they were not a mighty nation. But um, all we knew about Ugarit and about Baal worship uh, was pretty much in the Bible until in 1929, there was a young man out there plowing with a a plow, and and it got stuck. Well, he hit the top of the castle, the king's palace. And so this is often how they find things in, in the Near East. So they started to dig underneath there, and they found this huge cache of tablets written in a language that had not been deciphered yet called Ugaritic, spoken by Ugaritians um, in the town of Ugarit. And um, I spent the better part of my... <laughs> one or two years of my 30s trying to understand this literature when I should have been saving up money for my kids' 529 plans. But anyway, um, so um, um, now we all know about Baal uh, from the scriptures because Baal's mentioned all over the place. And so one of the main epics that we found, that this all applies to the psalm, so go with me, be patient. Um, one of the main... Um, epics that we found there was called the Baal epic and it's on six tablets they had these little clay tablets and then they would write with cuneiform a little style you know if you've seen pictures of Cadian which almost everybody has over in the British Museum or whatever it's kind of like that but this is where we get our alphabet okay so it's, it's different from the languages farther over but this is where we get our alphabet and um so anyway, they deciphered the language, and then on these six tablets, it basically is about Baal. So Baal conquers the sea, and the sea in this myth 
uh, the C is a symbol for chaos, okay? And uh, so Baal's the great king, allegedly, who conquers uh, the sea uh, in the first two tablets. And then in the number three and four, he builds his palace. But then in five and six, uh, Baal is, um, uh, goes to battle with death, who is called Mot, which very interesting is the same word uh, in, in um, Hebrew for death, Mot. And Baal loses. So he goes down to Sheol, and he's like trapped until Astarte, they were polytheists, so until his half-sister slash god comes down and releases him, and then that's conquering of death, and, and uh, no more does death hold Baal because death has been dealt the death blow. Some of this ultimately, very probably, has resonances in Paul indirectly. So death, where is your sting? That kind of thing. So now, why is that important? Well, that's important because when Baal is captured and, and in the jowls of death, um, everything goes to pot out in the world. There's no rain. There's no fecundity in agriculture. So their myth is they're thinking that because Baal, the king who governs the seasons, is uh, trapped by death, and therefore, you know, droughts are, are because of Baal, okay? And, um, and you go home and read Elijah, you know, uh, uh, narrative chapters 17 and 18 of First Kings. Remember, you had the 300 Baal prophets, and they go through all these things, you know, cut, cutting and all that to try and uh, uh, call down Baal and and uh, produce fire to lick up the water, and, and they can't do it. They're impotent. And then, and then uh, Elijah uh, ups them. And um, so that's all in the background of the Psalter in numerous places. And so uh, you can read in the handout more detail if you want. Um, but this is, this is important with regards to what's being said in the psalm with regards to a desire for the one true God, Yahweh, to be exalted and be king, and once again manifest his kingship by protecting his city and protecting his temple and moreover being present in his temple. Okay? Wow. So, I don't know. Just did what we normally do in two hours up at the seminary and... 15 minutes. So is this as clear as mud? So Jezebel was the daughter of Eth Baal. And where did she come from? The Sidonians. So she came right down here, went into Mount Carmel, and then uh, started dating a guy named Ahab. And you know there's the rest of the story from there. So this was tremendously influential uh, for all kinds of reasons I haven't even gone into on this Psalter. So just like Qumran is very important for certain things in our Old Testament, so to Ugarit we see not only these stories and these concepts that often bring um, explanatory power for certain statements, but, but also the very language uh, that they used for reasons I won't go into uh, had a profound influence over the development of the Psalter. Okay?
All right, now, now let's go back to the psalm and see how this may um, help make sense. And then I'll, I'll leave some time for Q&A at the end, okay? Um, so why is the Baal cycle that I've described uh, important? Uh, so it's important because According to these Ugaritic stories, as I say here at the bottom of, I don't have page numbers on this, but uh, uh, all rivals against the king, whether it be Baal or Yahweh as king, should fail. Um, And so what the psalmist does in this psalm is he appeals to God to maintain his rulership on his throne because he doesn't see that happening because the enemies are coming into the temple in the city. Okay? And so one commentator I quote here, Tate captures the tone when he paraphrases the psalmist, quote, will the divine warrior of Israel, that is God, whose victories have been both historical and cosmic, in other words, all through the world, prove inferior to Baal and allow his temple and his people to be brutalized? In other words, for certain things that I'll point out in a minute that demonstrate that there is some of this uh, religious historical background going on in dialogue with uh, Baal worship. Um, <clears throat> that's the presenting question. Um, you know, when Baal's down in Sheol, the world is not being watered from the heavens. There's no rain. This is tremendously important for these agriculturists, Okay. There's not peace, there's not fecundity, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when Yahweh, so the question is, is, is the temple being desecrated and is Jerusalem being conquered because Yahweh's not on his throne? Okay? And if Baal succeeded in coming on his throne and restoring order and peace to the world, well, where, where's Yahweh? Is he prove inferior uh, even to Baal? Okay, so if you look down um, on the paper, if you have it in front of you, if you don't, you can just listen. Um, and um, on, underneath the uh, bold print, Gog's kingship through a victorious clash with the sea, down at the bottom I quote uh, a writer who brings this home to the psalm. The parting of the Red Sea and the crushing blow to Egypt, the dragon of the deep, invite comparison with a Canaanite boast of Baal's victories over the personified sea and river, over the dragon, and over the seven-headed serpent, Lothon, called Leviathan in our psalm. The point here is, what Baal had claimed in the realm of myth, God had done in the realm of history, and done for his people, working salvation. Scripture also will use this language for battle with the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. But here, verses 12 to 15, survey the earthly scene, clothing the Exodus events in lively imagery from the Red Sea, verse 13a, to Jordan, verse 15b, from the realm of judgment on the enemy, uh, verse 13 and 14, to that of God's turning the wilderness into a scene of plenty. And then the next line is really crucial, especially if you... um, or entertain the thought of never coming back again with all this discussion of ancient Near Eastern myth. Um, it was highly relevant to the current crisis of verse 1 to 11, in other words, the destruction of the temple and the city, 
as it is to the vicissitudes of the Christian church. In other words, the afflictions of the Christian church. So like a few months ago, you probably don't remember, but you were probably nourished anyway. Just like, you know, probably many of us don't remember what our spouses cooked for dinner a week ago, but you were nourished. I preached on this psalm. And, and the point is that this is highly relevant to the vicissitudes of the church, the afflictions of the church. We live in a culture, post-Christian culture, where to preach orthodoxy is construed as a hate crime. Seriously. I mean, I'm arguing with somebody this week, uh, you know, over same-sex orientation. You know, I made the claim that I don't have a problem with a Christian in the church who struggles with same-sex orientation as long as they don't put it in practice. When they put it into practice, that's when we have to be involved. And, um, and this person was a professing Christian uh, making the opposite claim and basically trying to justify queer posture. Queer, queer means you're bisexual, you go both ways. So it's not just w, um, LBGT, it's LBGTQ. And, and now the latest stuff is IA, which is all about um, polyamorous relationships. And, um, but you know, so yeah, it may sound disgusting, but it, this is real, this is out there, this is the culture, and when we take a stand for orthodoxy, um, that's, um, that's construed to many people in our culture as a hate crime. I mean, just go, go up on the internet and, and, and do a search on Christianity is dangerous, Christian monotheism, and see what comes up. And you'll see what I'm saying is not hyperbolic at all. And um, so anyway, um, so, um, so now the psalmist, basically in verses 1 to 11, is, is saying, Lord, you're absent, we don't see you. You know, we're your chosen people, and now you let these enemies run roughshod over your city, let alone your temple, the place of your presence. And then uh, right towards the change in tone, like verse 10, 11, How long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff at us? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? So, you know, this is all Exodus material, because how did God save? He's saved by his strong right hand. But now the psalmist is saying, I know you have a strong right hand, but you're like Napoleon right now. You have it tucked, you know, in, 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 in your coat. You won't bring it out and, and be strong to save for your people. Um, and so he's saying, take it from your garment and destroy them. Actually, the Hebrew says, do it. So, you know, that's, you don't, if you're a lower status person, you don't give a higher status person commands and imperatives unless there's a fire in the house or unless you're a child that was badly raised. Um, that was a joke. Uh, but in the Psalter, the Psalter legitimates Christians to actually use imperatives in the second person to command God to do stuff. <laughs> That's amazing. This is a linguistic universal. I don't care what language you speak. All over the world, even in Asian cultures, which are highly, highly deferential, to speak in the imperative to a higher status person. That's a no-no. Okay. But here we see the psalmist doing it. Do it, Lord. Come on. Okay. Now, verse 12, it changes. Look at this. Yet God, my king, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. 
okay? And now he just marches through this litany of past deeds in verse 13 and following. So he goes to the Exodus. You divided the sea by your might. We know you did this, Lord, and it wasn't mythical. You really did it, okay? You broke the heads of the sea monsters. Well, who are they? It's not a hippo. It's not a whale. The psalmist is comfortable in this grief and this poem using language taken from the mythic stock of the cultures round about him. That may sound really radical without buying into all the presuppositions of the myth and all the worldview of the myth. Look, you can't get away from it. So for us Americans and British people, myth means non-historical. Okay? But I'm with C.S. Lewis. As a Bible scholar, you cannot get away from these mythic categories in the Bible. So you have to learn how to deal with it and say, that's right out of Ugaritic literature. We're talking about the same sea creature that Baal conquered, and now the psalmist is saying, no, Yahweh is the one who conquers Leviathan. Okay? The seven, seven-headed Lothan. Okay? And um, so, so, and he did it, like the author says that I quoted, in history, not in myth. Okay? So I'm with C.S. Lewis. I don't want to throw the word out, myth. I want to repristinate it and say, you can talk about myth in the Bible as long as you understand it can still be describing a true historical event. Like the Exodus was not a mythic event. Pace your former professor, okay? Uh, the Exodus really happened. Why else in the Psalms, like this one, would the psalmist be consoling himself? Like, let's say you go into the pastor's office or a psychologist's office and Christian. And it's like you're, you're talking about, you know, this psalm. And it's like, well, you don't need to be so bewildered and distressed. Because, look, just like God, um, he didn't really do this in the past. You know, deliver the Israelites from Pharaoh and all his minions. You know, it's just myth. It's, it's pretend. And it's like, you can bank your life on it, even though he didn't really do it. That's ridiculous, right? No. So when the psalmist talks about the exodus and uses that to console himself and other people, he does it as if it really happened because that has power, that has traction to encourage and give hope for whatever the psalmist is dealing with here many, many years later. See? So he, he appeals to... Um, um, you crushed the head of Leviathan. You gave him his food to the creatures. You split open the springs and brooks. You dried up the ever-flowing, so he's the God of creation. Yours is the day. Yours is the night. So now he appeals to these creation images as well as redemption, you know, from Egypt. You fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You give him, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so that's what he does. He goes through this litany of past deeds in order to console himself and, and others. And the whole uh, tone has changed. And then at the end of the psalm, we kind of come to uh, this climax. Uh, And what we have at the end of the psalm is um, basically um, God's not silent. Rather, uh, God uh, answers the psalmist's uh, questions and, well, maybe doesn't answer them, but he has this new hope that God will be victorious. And remember, the whole context is, uh, Lord, be king. 
<laughs> rule. Don't be hidden. Don't be like, you know, this Napoleonic gesture. Act. Do it. Uh, conquer your enemies. Show your majesty. And, and so the whole tone has changed where you get to verse 19. Don't give the life of your dove to the wild beast. Don't forget forever your poor ones. And the verse 20, he says, look to the covenant, to the habitations of the earth are full of haunts of violence. And, um, and then uh, 21, 22, and 23, he, he again um, basically prays that God would glorify himself. Let not the oppressed turn back humiliated, verse 21. May the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, contend for your cause. Remember your reproach from the foolish man always. Forget not the voice of your opponents, uh, the roar of your adversaries who rise up continually. So, see, what, what the psalmist is doing here is, he's basically making, it's a little bit anachronistic, in other words, looking back from our standpoint, the great Reformation cry, glorify yourself. That's why I titled the chapter this way, Soli Deo Gloria. You glorify yourself. So the psalmist isn't just bewildered and frustrated because he feels the absence of God not acting in the midst of this desecration. He's jealous for God to glorify himself and be king and rule because from his experiential standpoint, it doesn't look like that's the case. But as an act of faith, he's saying, glorify yourself. Okay? And especially towards the end of the psalm. So if you look uh, second to last page, there's a quote there from another person. He says, In the lament, the afflictions are expanded before Yahweh in a number of pictures. In this effort, the petitions always center on one main theme, the honor of God, the name of God. It has been attacked and reviled by the destructive work of the enemies and by the unbelief of the foolish people. Accordingly, the psalm prayer has only one expectation, that God would restore his honor. And we must not fail to recognize, now this is almost just like the previous quote, the ecclesiological importance of the psalm. So, look, I've taken pains to try and explain the original context here, but this has traction for us. When, when we see God's truth trampled underfoot in our day and age, it is always a timely prayer for us to pray to God, glorify yourself, magnify your name, and when your name is being diminished, may it be replaced with your glory. Uh, so that your ways may be known throughout the earth. So, so let's talk a little bit about that, and then we have some time for questions. So what is God's glory all about? So here I'm indebted to my colleague, Dave Ventrunen, who's written on this subject, and I think that's what's happening at the end of the psalm. So I snuck some of his material in here. Look, when, when we ask to God to glorify himself, we can't add anything to God's glory. Okay? His magnificence and his glory is in his simplicity, all of himself. Okay? Uh, we, can, we can ask him to manifest it. Okay? Um, but uh, when we ask God to glorify himself and manifest his presence and his glory again, even in the midst of feeling abandoned or being bewildered, uh, we're not adding anything to God's glory. 
But ultimately, where is God's glory most shown? In Christ and on the cross. So when you see these prayers in the Old Testament calling for justice, calling for um, peace, calling for God to glorify himself, all that ultimately converges at Calvary when Christ most glorifies himself. So Jesus is the true king of Israel who needs to manifest his glory in a surprising way to the world. He's the one that ultimately rules on the throne. So you could even say that as the psalmist is crying this out at the end of the psalm, the place where it ultimately lands is when Christ manifests his kingship and demonstrates that he rules over all the world, paradoxically through suffering and dying, (laughs) but then being resurrected and uh, being exalted and ultimately seated at the right hand of God and now rules over all creation. Uh, And ultimately, even we pray this in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. We're basically praying for the second coming. And thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, we're, we're ultimately praying for Christ to come back again. And then finally, uh, let's keep this tied in, anchored in to Psalm 50. God does not want mere external ritual. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, whether you're a Jew and offering sacrifices at the temple, or whether you're a Christian rolling out of bed and coming and just offering lip service and not really offering in sincere worship. Christ wants all of us, okay? And so um, the temple had to be destroyed. Why did the temple have to be destroyed? So the fulfillment could come in. Because the church is the ultimate fulfillment of the temple. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. God doesn't want to have the temple restored. (laughs) Well, God wants the temple to be restored in a certain way. In all the fullness of the temple of the New Testament, namely the church of God, of which you are a part if you're in union with him. So that's the ultimate answer for God uh, glorifying. Be glorified, Lord. All right, questions. I threw out a lot there. Some of it's in the paper. Yes. A-N-E, ancient near east. Probably in one of the earlier chapters, you know, when I first introduced that, I put in parentheses A-N-E. So that just means ancient Near East. So that includes um, Hittite up here in Turkey, uh, Ugarit, um, um, Babylon, Israel, of course, and Egypt. So that geographic area and the languages and literatures associated with those peoples and then to some degree also down in what was called Nubia, northern Africa, uh, had Ethiopic is, um, is also a Semitic language, and so there's a lot of influence there too. Questions, comments? Yes? 
right? Yes. So, so good. Uh, so, Kelly asked, uh, in the first temple, namely the tabernacle, the glory of God filled the tabernacle, came down upon it. So, Exodus 25 to 30. Then what about the second temple? So, there we read about 1 Kings 8, when Solomon dedicates the temple. So, in both places, yes. And... Um, but the significance of that is, again, presence of God. It's interesting you bring that up in light of worship this morning because Exodus 25 and falling with God coming down in this intensified way to fill the temple and have his particular presence more extraordinarily known at that time in that place. Ultimately, that all points towards Pentecost and the organization of the church. Right? Flames dancing on their head and all that. It's all imagery right out of the Old Testament. So, so yes, yes, yes. But ultimately, where is God's presence known in this epoch, in this era? Right here on Sunday morning. Church. No, especially in the organized body worshiping together. Yeah. On the Lord's Day. And now it expands. Yeah. And now it goes out to the end of the earth, like Pentecost. So it's not, you know, particularist. And, and that has tremendous ramifications for those of you that are maybe still in the back of your mind wrestling with, with questions about baptism. So Calvin's argument, in short, is if God applied the sign of the covenant in the old covenant when he showed particular love towards a particular people, naming Israel, and he applied this sign to that people at that time, namely circumcision, does it make any sense that now that we're in this new era and he's blown it wide open to bless all the nations and all the peoples, regardless of ethnicity, that he would be more restrictive in the application of the sign than he was in the Old Covenant? No, it doesn't make any sense. It makes more sense that, that he, he would apply the sign to all uh, his household, including children, um, even as he had in the Old Covenant. Would you say that um, the fact that Orthodox Jews don't have a temple today, would you say that it adds to the significance of what we're studying right now, that they don't have a place to sacrifice? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's somewhat complicated because the temple, when the Jews were scattered in what's called the diaspora, many of their ritualistic practices adapted uh, to, um, to the diaspora, being scattered among the nations such that they were able to participate in worship in their synagogues and know the presence of God without going to the temple. However, um, of course, this is all wrapped up in the politics of the Middle East, right? So... We're, we're not looking for a new temple to be rebuilt there on which there will be sacrifices or on which Jesus will come as king and reinstitute sacrifices. Jesus is the final temple. Jesus fulfills not just Passover. Jesus fulfills the whole sacrificial system. Why would you want to go over to a little, I don't mean to be overly sarcastic, but why would you want to have as your end game this little Disneyland plot of geography over in the Middle East 
when Paul says Christians get the whole world. <laughs> I don't want to be reductionistic. Well, why do they? No, well, yes and no. I mean, because of this diaspora thing, it's 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 become more complicated. But oh yeah, why are they all fighting over the Temple Mount? Why are they happy that a certain powerful man in the Western Hemisphere moved the embassy? Because you know, their their hope is in in the land and in you know, you know these are generalizations, and you get different expressions. And sadly, most. Most Jews in, in Israel are not practicing Jews. It's a dead place spiritually. I mean, you have orthodoxy, but, but most Jews in Israel are nominal and very superstitious. Anybody know what a mezuzah is? So a mezuzah is the little thing that they would put on their doorposts, and then, and then in there you put certain commands. And so I had a Jewish professor from Hebrew University in he had this little saying. He was Jewish, so you can see I'm not being anti-Semitic by saying this. But he goes, yeah, we have a saying over there because when Hezbollah or start you know, hurling rockets at Israel, they go, they go to the university and they start making sure all those mezuzahs are in order on the, on the, on the doorposts. Because you know, no mezuzah, you would lose it. No, that's what they say. I'm not, I'm not being pejorative or, or anti-Semitic or anything else. It's sad at the end of the day because it shows you how superstitious they are. Some. There are more Zionists in America than there are in Israel. So, it's not an easy issue. And we have Christian brothers and sisters in Palestine, so we shouldn't pontificate um, too quickly. We should be praying for them, too, you know. All right, let me, let, let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We do pray that you would continue to open our eyes to this portion of your Psalter. Uh, Lord, your whole Psalter teaches so wonderfully about Christ and about the church to come and, and about your second coming even. And think of Psalm 2 and realize that ultimately you will rule the nations and it will be manifest and every knee will bow to you and kiss the sun in due time, whether willingly or, or forcefully. And so, Father, we pray that you would have pity on the nations, that we, you would bring in all your chosen race, and that all your elect would worship you in spirit and truth and come to love the Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, for Jews as the Messiah who has indeed come, and uh, for us that have been brought in uh, on the outside, that uh, we will recognize you more and more as king and that you will subdue uh, not only our sins but our enemies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, see you next week. There, if you want to read ahead for the next chapter. It's shorter than heretofore. Um, you know, the chapters are only like eight pages or 